Well, good morning, Woodland. Can we give the Lord one more hand of praise? What a powerful. I was telling the first service this morning, the power of the lyrics of those songs that we sang, every single one of them this morning, so powerful. If you believe them, if you take them to heart, what they can do for your faith as you sing them this week. I'm going to really date myself, but um, this morning I, when I got up about 4.15, I, um, first song that crossed my mind, and unusually Becky was awake at that time. I don't know where she just slipped off to, but Becky was awake, and we talked for a moment, and I got up, and first song that crossed my mind was a song that not long after I gave my heart to Jesus, I won't sing it to you because it's a really hokey, 60-sounding song, but the lyrics are still good, although I could sing it to you. <laughs> it says, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible when you give your heart to God. Give your heart to God today. Trust Him, believe Him, and then you will say, everything is possible with God. And boy, as Pastor Corey prayed just now, everything, I call it my little boy, just jumping up and down inside. Jesus was hearing our prayers, and there are prayers being answered right now. And I'm so grateful for that, aren't you? I'm glad that he's here. So sing those songs. Well, go ahead. Give him a hand of praise. As we continue through the book of Ephesians, this week I want to talk to you about transforming peace. And for the next few weeks, that's going to be our key word, transforming. We'll be looking at how Paul writes in this book from all of this theology that we've looked at, how it transforms our churches, our families, our marriages, our children, how it transforms our communities, how we can transform our world through doing spiritual warfare. This is the really most practical stuff, and this is, for me, where the rubber meets the road. I mean, I love what we just finished. I love learning about the grace and the glory of Jesus, but how we live it. I've shared with you often before, and we have guests today, so I'll share it with you. When I first became a Christian, I was being told to do all kinds of things, but when I would ask how to do them, nobody would tell me how to do it. They were willing to tell me to do it, but not show me how to do it. I worked with a printer for a while, just for a brief while, and I learned more about him from printing. He showed me how to do everything. Sometimes he would take my hands and put them right where they needed to be so I'd know how to feel. When I first started playing golf, I just went out and started hitting a ball. I mean, how hard could it be? And then one day in Valdosta, Georgia, the ranger came and pulled me off the course. He said, son, you really don't belong here. <laughs> you belong on the practice range. And when I got lessons, I had to unlearn everything I had learned wrong. My best, one of my best friends in Georgia went to the University of Georgia on a tennis scholarship. And um, one day he asked me if I wanted to go play tennis. I didn't tell him I didn't know how to play tennis. I said, sure. We went and played tennis. My balls kept going way over the fence. And that's kind of hard to do, you know, if you know how to play tennis. And so... What I'm saying is, it's one thing to know what we ought to do. It's another thing to know how to do it. Can you say amen to that? It's one thing for Nike to say, just do it. And then if you go out there and try to run a marathon without preparing for it, 
It's one thing for Nike to say, just do it. It's another thing to learn how to run that marathon. So today I want to talk to you about peace, how the peace of God transforms us. I read an interesting study. It was a group of executives that were meeting, and they were all in high-stress positions. And the facilitator of the meeting, and this was not an Eastern religion or a transcendental meditation gathering, but he asked them, he says, I'd like for you to just imagine peace. Just in your mind, close your eyes and imagine peace. And so after these executives had done this, and this was a high-dollar conference, they were paying this guy a lot of money. And when they opened their eyes, he says, now, let's just go around the room and let's find out what peace is. People imagine things like a mountaintop. Some folks imagined the ocean being at the shore of the ocean and the waves coming in. Some imagine the high plains or the prairies. Some imagine being under a tree. But there was one common factor to every one of those scenes, and you've probably guessed it. In every scene, they had eliminated people. What they had was nature, but not people. And you see, peace implies that we're able to not only get along with each other, I mean, that's just the basic, but it implies we're able to love each other. Remember how we looked at the word earlier, shalom, where everything is as it should be. It's not just the absence of conflict, but it's the fullness of God's love, God's peace, God's power, God's provision. That's what that word shalom means. In everything about our lives, that things are as it should be. If you have a Kindle like I do, and you highlight passages like I do, I was stunned to find out that Kindle, Amazon actually records everything that you and I underline. I guess Amazon is like Google now. They know everything about our lives. But they record everything that you underline. They build statistics off of it. They know how to advertise to you off of what you underline on your Kindle. So I was curious to find out what was the most underlying passage of Scripture that they had. I thought it would be John 3.16, like you see at the football games. I thought perhaps it might be Psalms 23. But instead, this is the most underlined passage on people's Kindles and their Bibles. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The transforming peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. I thought that was interesting, don't you? Not the ones that we more commonly think of. As a matter of fact, scientists have even gotten interested in the study of peace and forgiveness. And maybe the reason that the literature is so young on this research is because theology was the mother of science. Theology gave birth to science. Theology delivered us from superstitions, like there were fairies and sprites, and there were demons behind every rock, and you had to worship a tree. Science delivered us from that, and sci excuse me, theology delivered us from that, and it birthed science. And so most early scientists were committed followers of Jesus Christ. So the literature on studying peace and forgiveness only goes back to 1989. Here are some things that 
I recently, in looking at some of their studies, 17 things they've learned about peace and forgiveness, just a couple of things, there's 17 of them, but a couple of things I thought you might be interested in. In the first service, I really enjoyed sharing this because my favorite cat lover was in the first service this morning, and that is cats will never forgive you. Any cat lovers in the service? Don't offend your cat. They will never forgive you. Gorillas will forgive you. Chimpanzees will forgive you. Even, even hyenas will forgive you. Not that I want to test that theory with any of those creatures, but cats in their observed behavior, they never forgive and they always retaliate to those that they feel like that have hurt them and offend them. Here's another thing that I learned about peace and forgiveness, and that is that carrying a grudge literally weighs you down. They had people who said they were carrying grudges. They had resentment in their heart. There was broken relationships in their relationships with other pe people. There was no peace between them. They had them to get into a jumping contest. And the average jump height of the person, now if you play basketball, this is important, so pay attention. The average jump height of a person who had unforgiveness in their heart and was at peace with other people was eight and a half inches. But the people who had been hurt, but they had forgiven and they had reconciled, their average jump height was 11.8 inches. So carrying a grudge literally weighs you down. The Bible says that resentment will dry up your bones. So this morning, I'd like to talk to you about transforming peace. Because I've never married a couple who said, oh, we want to get married, but we're going to get divorced one day. I've never, ever, ever helped with a church plant where they said, oh, we love each other. You're my brother. You're my sister in the Lord. But one day, we're going to let disunity and fighting divide us, and we're going to split and not speak to each other again. I've never prayed over a new company, and I've prayed over a lot of them, small businesses and companies, even one bank. I've never prayed over one of those banks where they said, well, we're going to have a falling out, and we're going to divide our business assets, or somebody's going to take advantage. We always have these dreams that we are going to be able to get along. And then we get married, <laughs> and we discover there are some irritating differences about one another. Matter of fact, when Becky and I got married, she found out that I have an irritating habit to her. It's only natural to me, sweetheart. Tim Romanowski took your side after the first service this morning, but I take my socks off when I go to bed, when I go to bed, and I leave them by the side of the bed. I often forget to pick them up the next morning when I get up to get ready. That's an irritating habit to Becky. She told me that our first week of marriage. 42 years later, I still have an irritating habit. Now, don't judge me. Of course, she has no irritating habits whatsoever. None that I'm going to admit to you. I want you to stand with me this morning because I want to talk to you about how the peace of God can transform our lives. Jesus, I thank you for the gift of shalom. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of peace. And Lord, we live in an angry, bitter world constantly at war with each other. God, there's cultural wars, there's political wars, 
There's religious wars. Sometimes I find myself, Lord, just so heavy and longing, Lord, for your return. And then I'm reminded that, God, you literally have established something in our hearts and lives that make us a light to the world. And in the church and in the body of Christ, there can be peace that not only transforms us as a community of faith, but can transform the communities that we live in. Everything is possible with you. Everything is possible with you. So, Lord, we come to the throne room. We kneel at your feet, and we ask you to teach us from your word. Lord, may I say only what should be said and nothing more or nothing less on this subject today, I pray in Jesus' holy name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Well, the first thing that Paul says in this passage that Pastor Corey led to you this morning is to lead a worthy life. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of an intimidating statement to me. How can I lead a life worthy of what Christ did for me at Calvary or worthy of the love or the blood of Jesus? You can't on your own. So it's important, Paul points out in this last last half of Ephesians, that you understand who you are in Christ. You understand what you've become in Christ. You understand that you are a new creation. In our study in the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, we bring out each week that the book of Genesis is all about how God created the world and created you and I. And the New Testament is all about how God brought about a new creation for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Our Father has adopted us through the blood of Jesus, so it's important that we understand who we are in Christ. We are sons and daughters of God who have given our hearts to Jesus, and we are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that relationship changes how we look at one another. But it's also important, Paul says, that we understand what God wants us to do. We understand His will for our lives, and so therefore it's important for us to know His Word. Paul is writing as a prisoner to a church that he has to remind of the theology, but he also has to remind them how to live this out because this church had become threatened by compromise and conflict and was in danger of blowing all apart. And there's not a one of us in this room, I'm sure, that we don't know where once there was a strong, healthy church that has been blown apart because of unresolved conflicts and because of animosity that have happened. I know of churches that used to once be great missions churches that no longer exist. I know people who don't speak to each other in the body of Christ because they had such sharp and severe disagreements. And so because of that, Paul is writing 20 years after the starting of this church, and he says, therefore, and the therefore is in light of all of the theology that you and I have looked at for the last few weeks, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, Paul's in prison for his faith in Christ. They're still living their lives. And then he uses a strong word, beg you, I beg you, friends, 
I don't want to beg for anything, but I'm not ashamed to beg for the cause of Christ. I'm not ashamed to beg people to follow Jesus, but I will never beg for my own personal needs. I'm thankful that I've never had to beg for my own personal needs. But Paul, this great man of faith, is begging the church to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And as he breaks this out for us, he helps us to understand we cannot live this life alone. You can't lead a worthy life for Christ by worshiping God under a pine tree and saying, I can worship God just as good under a pine tree. I don't need the church. The church is full of hypocrites. Well, I don't doubt that there are hypocrites in church, but I believe there are hypocrites where you work at. I believe there are hypocrites where you go to school at. I believe there are hypocrites when you go to the ball game. I bet you there are a lot of people watching the football game today who really don't like football. They're just there to be a part of the crowd. Hypocrites are everywhere you go. As a matter of fact, I believe there's something a little bit hypocritical about all of our lives, and that's why we need the body of Christ and the searchlight of the Holy Spirit to help us lead this life worthy of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying is, live together as brothers and sisters. God made you to live in fellowship with other believers. It's why he says, live in the unity of the Spirit. Live in the unity of the Spirit. Much of my personal growth as a Christian has come not because of my Bible reading, not because of my private prayer life, but much of my growth as a Christian has come because of the godly people that I've chosen to do life with. Their lives have had an impact on me. Their lives have had an influence in my life. Their lives have shaped my thinking. Their lives have helped me with decisions. Their lives have helped me through times of crisis. Now, I don't mean to imply that I feed off of them. We don't feed off of one another. We feed off of Jesus Christ so we don't become emotional vampires or spiritual vampires trying to feed off of the life of other people. As a shepherd, you don't feed off of my life I feed you the Word of God, and that's what we live off of. Can you say amen? And so even in a small group, that's what we're doing. We're living together in unity. We're living together in the Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 3, and Corey read this to you, make every effort, every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. This is what Jesus said about our unity. This is what Jesus said about our love. This is what Jesus said about our forgiveness of one another. He says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples and that you have love for one another. And that love is directly connected with the shalom of God. You can't love people and then gossip about them at the same time. You can't love people and then criticize them at the same time. You can't love people and then judge them at the same time. When we love people, we do life together with people. We encourage one another. We rebuild one another up. If there's exhortation, maybe they're doing something wrong, or you see me doing something wrong, or you see a vital sign failing in their lives, we call them to accountability on that because we care for them and love them. But you know when you're being loved and when you're just being criticized. And so since Jesus taught that we'll be known by our love for each other, where do you think Satan will always attack a marriage? 
Where do you think Satan will always attack a family? Where do you think Satan will always attack a church? Where do you think Satan will always attack a business that has been dedicated to the glory of God? He will always attack in our unity and our love for each other. He attacks our unity. He attacks our love because that is the area, the sphere of our greatest influence in our community. People know that we are followers of passionate followers of Jesus Christ because we love one another. Can you say amen again? That's the influence we have in their lives. But here's the good news. He will not win. I don't believe Woodland will ever split as long as we remember this. I don't believe your marriage will ever fail as long as you remember this. I don't believe your family will ever fail as long as you remember this. Or your business will fail as long as you remember this. We know the strategy of the devil. He will always try to attack us. And Paul in prison knows that the unity of the church is being attacked. So he reminds them of God's strategy for victory. He says, live in unity, but you do this. How? How do you live in unity? By being humble and by being gentle. By being humble and by being gentle. Say those two words, two words with me. Humble and gentle. Say it again. Humble and gentle. Remember the power of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking more of your neighbor. Humility is not putting yourself down. It's lifting God up. It's why our prayer last night in the prayer service was that God would be glorified in here, that we would make much of Jesus, that we would love Jesus. We saw amazing answers to prayer last night in this room as we gathered in here to pray together last night because our God is the God of the impossible. Everything is possible with God. And so we walk in a humility with one another. We walk in a gentleness with one another. And when I see myself in relationship to God, and I see myself in relationship to you as the family of God, then suddenly I begin to act on the basis of that relationship. There's been a lot going on in the news Lately, I think it's a healthy discussion. I'm not speaking to the politics of what's going on with the Supreme Court judge nomination. I have my own opinions about that outside the pulpit. I'll be glad to share those with you. But I think it's healthy that it's being discussed about the young women who have experienced date rape, the young women who have been raped or hurt or harmed in any way, their voices being heard. As a pastor and a youth pastor, I've sat across too many times from those young women who have cried and have been hurt, have been in situations. I've heard people say, well, they shouldn't have done this or they shouldn't have done that while never attacking the young man. So understand this, as somebody that has been there and listened and seen girls slut-shamed on their campus and in their communities because somebody took advantage of them and nobody had the guts to take on the young man and his family that did such a thing. It's a healthy conversation we're having right now. When I was dating Becky, I will never forget when Becky was doing a kid's crusade. I was a young, single, traveling preacher at the time. I called myself an evangelist. And, and I had come in from Alabama where she was doing a, uh, come in from Alabama to Georgia where she was doing a kid's crusade. 
We were hosted by a pastor and his wife and some other pastors in the community that wanted to meet me because they all knew Becky and loved her. And I remember we were sitting around their table one night and suddenly it was like, this, I know this didn't really happen. It was just like a vision for me, but suddenly she was surrounded by a light. It was like everybody turned down the volume. I could hear people talking but not understand them. It wasn't an audible voice, but just as clear as a bell, I heard the Spirit of God speak to me and say, this is my daughter, love her, treat her right, treat her well. Friends, you might think that that put chill bumps all over me and went, yes, 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 I want to marry this girl. That scared the dickens out of me <laughs> because suddenly I knew God was saying, that's my little girl and how you treat her is how you treat me. And brothers and sisters, hear me this morning. Being gentle with one another, being humble with one another is understanding our relationship to God, but also our relationship to each other. We are a family in Jesus Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? Look at Ephesians 4.2 with me, if you would. Always, always be humble and gentle. How often should you be? Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. You see, it's a choice that you have to be gentle or humble. It's a choice that you have to be patient with one another. Allow for each other's faults because of your love. Be long-tempered instead of short-tempered. Your ability to work, your ability to speak, your ability to think, your ability to act as a passionate follower of Jesus Christ needs to be, must be submitted to the control of God and submitted to His Word and His will. Can you say amen to that? That's what it means to be a passionate follower of Jesus. For a family to work, for a marriage to work, for a church to work, for a business to work, we have to make allowances for one another's faults. Because believe it or not, even you are going to make some mistakes once in a while. Look at your husband this morning and say, honey, it's okay. I know you're going to make a mistake occasionally. Now, because I love you men and I want you to have a pleasant afternoon, do not say that to your wife. <laughs> you see, Jesus is my best example here. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus said, I am humble and I'm gentle at heart. He's saying, if you follow me and you adopt this life, you live your life under my control, you will find rest for your souls. I mean, think about it. God became a man. In just a few weeks, we will be celebrating Advent. Can you believe it? I mean, Christmas is almost here. In just a few weeks, we'll be celebrating that God became a baby, that God clutched at a mother's breast to nurse, that God ate strained peas and carrots and spinach. That's real submission. And I believe as God, he spit it out and said, no baby ought to have to eat that stuff. I mean, as God... 
The Bible says, now listen, I hope it's humorous, but I want you to get the point. He learned submission through the things he suffered. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He served throughout his whole life. He even humbled himself by choosing to die on that wonderful, glorious cross for our sins so that we could be born again and redeemed by his blood. And sweetheart, if that doesn't excite you, your wood is all wet this morning. God died to save you from your sins. Hallelujah. He was gentle. Let the little children come to me. When his ambitious disciples were saying he didn't have time, he stopped and he knelt and he said, come. And if you follow Jesus, I promise you, sir, if you follow Jesus, I promise you, he will lead you into a life of gentleness and humility that you cannot do on your own, but God will transform your life. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other's brothers and sisters and love each other deeply with all your heart. That's not some perverse, immoral expression of love. It's the pure love of God that we love each other deeply. I talked to both of my sisters this week. I love those girls deeply. I was praying for my sister-in-law yesterday for particular needs. I love her deeply. But I love you deeply. You love me deeply. Our world does not understand that kind of deep and pure love anymore. Our world is losing its moorings in what it even means to be a human being or to be a man or a woman. This week in the New York Times, I read how this couple had a baby through a surrogate mother and was there in the, the birthing room and they gave strict instructions, do not even give a hint at what the baby's gender is because we want the baby to decide what its gender is. And I thought to myself reading that, you fathead. I'm religious like that sometime. You fathead, you may be sitting there thinking that, but every doctor and every nurse in that room was going, congratulations, you got a baby girl or you got a baby boy. And you may lose your identity and what it means to be a man or a woman, but one day when they dig up your bones, and they test your DNA, they're going to say he was a man or she was a woman. We are not our sexuality. We are human beings created in the image of God. We are not defined, pardon my French, by our genitalia. We are defined by the creation of God. We were created in his image. Let's don't defy that. Let's celebrate that. And let's love one another in the relationship that God has called us to be and accept each other and love each other as Christ has called us to. It's the spirit of God's unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you you, spirit, soul, and body. Remember, it is the unity of the Holy Spirit. It's not us, it's His unity. Verse 3, make every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. What's He saying there? The effort that we make is not our own effort, it's trusting in God. It's why those courses were so meaningful to me this morning. 
This unity is impossible in a marriage or a home or a business or a church. Oh, you may exist together legally. You may sleep under the same roof legally, but there is no love or no fellowship. There is no kindness. There is no gentleness because you have not experienced the transforming peace of God. It is not our effort. We trust in the work of the Holy Spirit as we follow Him. If we will follow Him, He will lead us into a life of humility and gentleness with one another. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that this morning? You see, if I trust in my efforts, you're only going to get what my efforts can give you. If you trust in your efforts, you're only going to be able to give what your efforts can produce. But if you trust in God, all things are possible with God. Do you get the difference? And you see, those little irritating differences that I spoke about a while ago, my socks beside the bed, for instance, you see, those differences God uses to make something beautiful out of our lives. Not many of you are Georgia Bulldog fans, though God has called you to be. <laughs> How many of you are Spartan fans? How many of you are Wolverine fans? Can Wolverines and Spartans get alone together? Yeah. Except on Saturday. <laughs> you see, we have these Afghans in our house. Becky loves to knit, but we have these four, uh, excuse me, we have six Afghans that a 90-year-old, 92-year-old lady in our church knitted for us. Ben's is eight foot long because it had to be to cover him up. <laughs> I went into her room where she knits, and there was all this jumble of yarn, confusion everywhere. And I said to her, how do you keep this all together? You know, how do you pull it all together? And she goes, oh, I just put it all in a basket, and I start working, and it just comes out right. And we have these beautiful Afghans that we all use during, I mean, during the winter, we just pull them over us while we watch football or something like that. God takes all of those differences and he makes something beautiful out of us. When God takes different colors and it's shaped, then an artist can give us a beautiful painting like the Mona Lisa. But when you take me, who has no training, and I take and paint, Becky comes in and says, stop, I'll finish. Now, don't think I'm being lazy. I'm really trying to earn brownie points there. But she goes, stop, I'll finish. You see, there is the difference between somebody who knows how to take our differences and put them together like there is in phase knowing how to put those Afghans together. But what I have learned in marriage and what I have learned in ministry and what I've learned in getting along with people, God planned these differences like the different colors of yarn, like the different skill sets, like the different talents, like the different spiritual gifts. God planned these gifts to work together to bring Him glory and to bring him honor. And if we will allow him, he will help us to appreciate one another's differences in our lives. Can we give him another hand of praise for that this morning? <laughs> He's in heaven now. Hi, Miss Francisco. Every time you see that sign out front, you remember Francisco's love for this church and this congregation. But I remember Francisco badgering me to go to the opera. Francisco, I don't want to go to the opera. <laughs> so he cheated. He went to Becky. 
They set a date. They made reservations. One Sunday morning, standing right there, he powered up on me. I mean, he amped up on me. He put his finger in my chest and says, you're going to the opera. Becky said so. <laughs> oh, I said, Francisco, if you tell anybody, I'm going to ask the board to dismiss you from the church. I will lose my man card around here for that. Lo and behold, Francisco, in all of his wisdom, he chose an opera with the subtitles under it. He gave me a synopsis to read and called to be sure I read it. And I have to admit, I had a marvelous time. I appreciated the difference because somehow or another, men in opera and ballets, that just didn't appeal to me. Now, I kind of would like to go to another opera with Francisco, with Francisco again. <laughs> you see, what God does is he helps us to appreciate the differences. You say, well, Pastor, how? Well, Paul gives us seven foundational truths that we can do that with. Seven foundational truths. It can happen in our effort. It can happen in you. And I want you to look with me at this. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Would you underline in that passage in your outline, one body, one spirit, one glorious hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all. And let me quickly walk you through that because when you build a foundation, then you can build a house. This week, my son called me and we were talking about something. And he says, you know, Dad, you used to teach us in our devotions how that it was important to build our house upon a rock. It was important to, to build our house on God's word so it would be solid and unshakable. He says, the longer I'm living and the people that I meet and do life with, he says, I'm understanding more than ever how important that is. We're talking about the life of our third grandson who's severely disabled, who has to receive weekly or biweekly blood transfusions just to be able to live. But I admired the faith of this young man. I admired the faith of a boy, and I gave thanks for the nights when we gathered for family prayer. But when you build a foundation, you still don't have a house. So these are just foundational truths. You got to take and build upon this. This is how you build a life of peace. This is how you build a marriage of peace. This is how you build a, a church of peace. This is how you transform your world. It's why we can never, ever, ever compromise on these core convictions of the Word of God. There are some things it is free, we're okay to disagree on, but we cannot compromise on these core convictions of the Scripture. Can you say amen to that? So let me walk you through. There's one body, the body of Christ, the church. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. When one of us rejoice, we all rejoice. There is one spirit. And there may be times when we disagree with one another in our marriage, our family, our church, our business. But the Holy Spirit within us, now this is key, the Holy Spirit within us, he never disagrees with himself. 
God is not schizophrenic. God doesn't argue with himself. The Holy Spirit never disagrees with him, and the same Spirit that lives in me lives in you, and if we will seek the Lord together and look to him for direction, we can find agreement in the midst of our difficulties and our differences. Can you say amen? There is one glorious hope, and that hope is the hope of heaven. Every once in a while, I will say to Becky about some moment or some experience, oh, honey, if this could last forever. Sweetheart, if this could last forever. Or sometimes I'm playing with the grandchildren, and I will think if this could last forever. Or maybe it's that moment when you're, you're out and you're looking at the sky, and it blazes with color, and your family's close, and you go, if this could last forever. And those are those moments. Listen, don't miss this. Those are those moments when God is given us this itsy bitsy teeny weeny bit of glimpse into heaven when we experience those moments and we go oh if this could last forever I have good news for you this morning heaven is eternal heaven is forever and it has not entered into our minds or into our hearts what God has prepared for us the things that I wish could last forever will pale in comparison to the glories of being in heaven together with you and Jesus Christ Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Never forget that. Now, that's not to diminish in any way your experiences, but it's to make you make much of heaven. So I have a suggestion for you. Learn to get along now because you're going to spend a long time together in heaven. There's one Lord. Following Jesus' Lordship is always the path to better relationships. One Lord, he's saying to this church that is experiencing contention, one faith, the kind of life we want to live, the faith once delivered by, to, to us by God himself. We live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith and not by fear. We live by faith and not by war. We live by faith and not by selfishness. We live by faith and not by greed. This is a life of faith that God has called to. There is one baptism. We have been baptized into the Spirit of God. There is one God. And the Bible, I love the way the Bible says this, that God is over all, God is in all, God is through all. I don't know how many alls that is in your life, but every all in my life, every relationship, every financial decision, every dream, every need, every hope, everything, God is in that all. God penetrates, God saturates, God covers. God is above me, beneath me, before me, behind me. God is in all and through all. There's no area of your life that God doesn't penetrate with the glory of his presence. <laughs> nothing, nothing. In all of my relationships, I want to know where God is. I want to react and respond the way God would because I am loved by a generous Father. I can love the way He loves. And that's God's call upon our lives. Quickly, look at these three verses with me. I won't comment on them. I just want to put them in your mind. and You may want to jot the references down. We have all been baptized into one body by one spirit and we all share the same spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things were created and through whom we live. And in 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, we are already God's children. Can we say that? We are already God's children. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know 
that Dennis and Becky and Matt and Lisa and Tim and Debbie, we will be like Christ. We will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. That's good news, ladies and gentlemen. That is wonderful news. And then finally this morning, before we hit our growth work, and then we're going to pray over all of our students, I'm called, therefore, to be a peacemaker. Make every effort, Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Every effort. I have been in certain parts of the world where I've met peacekeepers. One of our mission trips that we sent our students on, they met peacekeepers. Some of them bought back little signs from people who were working hard through the United Nations to keep peace. Peacekeepers often place themselves in danger. Peacekeepers often place themselves in between battles. In Brooklyn, one of the boroughs of New York recently, there was almost a showdown, didn't make the major papers, should have. There was almost a showdown and a protest where some people were shouting threatening threats and gathered up rocks and bottles. Police officers' hands were upon their revolvers. And a group of pastors who pastor in Brooklyn heard about it and they rushed down and got right between the police and the protesters and just knelt down and began to pray. And as they prayed, suddenly people began dropping their rocks and walking away and police officers began taking off their hands off their pistols. You need to understand, there's more power in you to work for peace than you've ever dreamed or contemplated. And even if one of them had been hurt or killed, that would not in any way have diminished the message of being a peacekeeper. For the Prince of Peace went to the cross to die for your sins and my sins. So John would write in 1 John 1, 3, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Family, He's here. He's here. You may not feel Him. You may not have any chill bumps. But right now, remind yourself that someone greater is here. And his name is Jesus. And you can experience him. Not just know about him, but you can experience him. I need to pray for the students, so I'm skipping down to St. Francis' prayer. I want you to stand with me this morning. That is under the point, peace risk, there you go, you got it. Would you read this with me this morning? I'm sure you've read it and you know it. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. 
Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you, for the sake of our community, that we will not only be a church living and walking in that transforming peace, but the Father when we leave this place, the Lord, we will be standing in the gap like those praying pastors in Brooklyn. God, praying with faith and Lord Jesus, seeking to be the answer to the prayer we just prayed. We're not trusting in our efforts, but we're trusting in you. For it's in your name I pray. Would you be seated this morning? And let me give you some growth work, what you can do. And I'm going to ask all of our students, if you'll just come on down to the front row that, that are here this morning. First of all, maturity is an attitude. Maturity is an attitude. God, is, God wants me to be a success, but God is not nearly as interested in my success as he is in my maturity. A big... A big, big part, now listen, a big part of maturity is learning not to be controlled by my emotions. A big part of maturity is learning not to be controlled by my circumstances, but to live a spirit-filled, spirit-controlled life. Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful, grow to maturity, Encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace. And then the God of love and peace will be with you. Secondly, be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. And if you're the troublemaker, you know. Because you take great joy. You have that part of your attitude, that part of your life, where you love just getting people going and then standing back and watching it all happen. You know that. But you can change. You can change. Because God has called you to work for peace and use that influence that you have where you can get people pitted against one another. You can use that influence to get people working together. You see, even though you may not feel like it, when you begin to act and behave like Christ has called you to act and behave, your whole life will begin to change. That's the reason I tell people all the time, don't wait till you feel like it. Just do it because it's right. If you go to Greenfield Village, and I'm sure most of you have, you've been to Thomas Edison's lab. I love Greenfield Village. What a great, great resource in our community, great place to visit. But one of the things I found out there was when Edison made the first light bulb after all those experiments, he gave it to one of the errand boys in the lab and told him to take it upstairs to the testing room so they could get ready to show it off. And the errand boy turned around and stumbled and fell and broke that light bulb. 
And rather than blowing up at him, Edison just simply turned to the team and says, make another one. It took him several days to make another light bulb. But this is where the story gets good. When they made the light bulb, Edison sent for the same errand boy and he gave him the light bulb. He says, take this bulb upstairs to the testing room so we can show it off. Can you understand what he did for that errand boy? He didn't define that boy by his failure. He defined that boy by his potential. And peacemakers have the ability to do that. And then finally, I want you to believe in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. You're not here by an accident. God brought you here today. You may have been invited. You may have come just to please somebody. You might even come because the girl's pretty or the guy looks good. But you're here in the plan of God. And God says in his word, Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. God is here and he wants to transform your life. So I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to pray. If you've never, ever, ever opened up your life to Jesus, if you've never asked him into your heart and you've never said, Father, forgive me of my sins. I mean, you believe in Jesus, you know who he is, but you've never committed your life to him. Or maybe you did and you've wandered away from that and maybe that's why God has got you here today. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just pray it quietly. You don't have to pray it out loud. And Christians all over this room are praying for you right now. Say, so, dear Heavenly Father, I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins. I believe what you said in your word this morning, that you are my father, that you will adopt me as your child. I don't understand it all. But I do ask for forgiveness. I do want you to be the most important person in my life above everyone and everything. And I do want to follow you for the rest of my life. So today, I commit myself to you and ask you to come into my life and fill me with your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And now let's everyone say, Amen. Amen. At the end of the service, Pastor Rick is going to tell you a little bit more information. If you prayed that prayer, we have a gift for you. We want to help you grow. But I'm going to ask our students, would you come? And I'm going to ask you, and I want you to trust Pastor on this, okay? I've never done this. But when I was praying for you, I felt like I needed to ask you to do what I preached about to your moms and dads last week. Let's kneel in the altar this morning. There's something good about kneeling in the presence of the Lord. It reminds us of who we are and who God is. So I'm going to ask you, some of you to kneel over here. Why don't this pew of you come over here and kneel? And those of you that are on this side, would you come and just kneel at the altar this morning? And I want you to get ready. We're going to pray for you and your school year. Would you come right now? Just, you can kneel right here at the front if you want to. Now. While they're kneeling and beginning to pray, we sang a song this morning, I run to the throne room. I run to the throne room. I want every man and woman in this church 
that's willing to go to the throne room this year and pray for our students Monday through Friday, I want you to come and stand behind these students, and I want us to pray over them this morning. So those of you that are willing to pray, don't come if you're not willing to pray. Don't lie to them and don't lie to God. I want you to come like Jesus, and let's bring these children to the Lord. Let's bring these young people to the Lord today. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, Jesus, we love you so much. We love you so much. Now, these kids, some of them are going to be standing around their flagpole in just a few days and our Wednesday, and they're going to be praying with other Christian students on their campuses, and they're going to be making a statement of faith. And then in a few more weeks after that, they're going to be joining and they're going to be taking their Bibles to school with them on Bring Your Bible to School Day that Focus on the Family is sponsoring. And I want us to pray for them right now. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, thank you for every boy and girl, for every high school student that's here today. Jesus, your hand is upon each and every one of them. Lord, remind them that you've always got time for them. Remind them that you love them. And remind them that, Lord, they are a generation that the Scripture prophesies about. That, Lord, you will pour out your Spirit upon them. They will do amazing things for you and for your glory. I pray that they will be like the generation that Daniel prophesied about in Daniel chapter 11 and 12. That, Lord, they will know you and they will do great and mighty exploits. And in chapter 12, Lord, that where others choose to do evil, they're going to choose to honor you and to worship you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray for them, Lord, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper. I pray, Lord, that their lives will be filled with goodness and grace and peace. I pray in the name of Jesus that, Lord, you're going to bring them godly Christian friends to do life with, and that those friends of theirs, along with their witness, will be influential in bringing other students to know Jesus Christ as their Lord as well. I thank you, Lord, for every one of them. They are a promise. They are a possibility, God. They are a gift from you. For the Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord. And so we bless you for each and every one of them. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen and amen. Let's give the Lord a hand of praise. Hallelujah. 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 Now, hallelujah. I want you to listen to me for just a second. The reason I'm so excited about this Bring Your Bible to School Day is when I gave my heart to Jesus, I was 16. I was a bitter, peaceless young man. But when I gave my heart to Jesus, that night I prayed, Lord, I don't know any Christians at my high school. And the next day, three Christian friends that we're still, except for one of them is in heaven already, we're still friends today. We're still friends today. We've done life together ever since that time. Second thing is, I felt like the Lord wanted me to carry my Bible to school. And so in those days, I would put my, I still have that Bible. It's got, I couldn't find it. I wanted to bring it. It's still packed away and stuff we've never unpacked, but it's got those of you to my generation, it's got a one-way sticker on the front. Remember when we'd put our finger up and say one-way? It's got a well-worn one-way sticker. It was amazing how many kids would come and talk to me about Jesus just because I had my Bible with me. 
Second thing, I had a professor announce to the class, he said, I've noticed Mr. Clanton. Now, they do that in the South. Even when you're young, they'll call you Mr. So I noticed Mr. Clanton brings his Bible to school every day. It was in an advanced literature class. He said, one of the greatest pieces of literature that we have is the Bible. And this year, we're going to study the book of Job together. It's from what the Bible calls wisdom literature. And for a solid three months, we studied the book of Job by a man who loves, with a man who loved God that was a high school teacher who told me I had the courage to do that because you bought your Bible. You will not be just an influence on your friends. You'll be an influence on the students and on the teachers in your school this year. God's anointing is upon your life. Amen? I love you. I'm so proud of you. And I'm so proud of Pastor Corey and Jeanette. I see Jeanette, but where's Corey? They really do love each other, even though they're separated by miles apart. Pastor Rick, come and dismiss us this morning if you would.